loving God, we come before you and we wait on you and we come before you asking that you'll open our hearts and minds and our ears that we might hear and take your word into our life and do it. We give this time into your keeping and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. see the Jersey Boys? Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Walk like a man. Well, I'm not going to walk. ask you to walk like a man today because that would be sexist. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you to think like a Hebrew instead of thinking like a Greek. And you say, well, what's the difference? Our Western civilization, the foundation for science in the West, is based on Greek thinking. And the Greeks thought in a linear fashion, a straight line, from A to B to C to D, and then you come to your conclusion. And when they wrote history, they wrote it chronologically. And we can't think of writing history any other way because we are so ingrained with Greek thinking, that's who we are as a people. The Hebrews, on the other hand, they didn't think in straight lines. I like to say they thought circularly, in a circle. Meaning that someone would posit an idea or a, an issue, and they would begin discussing it, but they wouldn't come to a conclusion. They would tell stories all around this one idea or the issue. And after a period of time, they would come to the conclusion, but it wasn't necessarily at the end of the discussion. It could be in the middle. In fact, it's, it's way too long to go into it, but there's a lot of, of portions of the Bible that are written where you see an argument, the conclusion, and then the argument continues again afterwards. That's the, the Hebrew circular thinking. So I want us to try to get out of our Hebrew, I mean, our Greek mindset into a Hebrew mindset. <coughs> And understand that although the Greeks wrote history chronologically, the Hebrews didn't. The Exodus stories have Greek portions in that, and you all know that we're in a series on the book of Exodus. <clears throat> the, the history there is chronological, but you miss the meaning often if you see it only as chronological. Because what the Hebrews do is they, they will take themes and they will cluster passages based on a particular theme <coughs> that breaks up the chronology. And today, that's the kind of passage of scripture that we have. They do that because what they're interested in is not history, but theology. Now, they're interested in history because it teaches theology as well. 
But their main concern is that through this writing of history that we come to know who God is. And that's theology. And so the themes often take precedent over the chronology. They usually teach us about God. And today we have a very clear theme. In fact, this is a cluster of three events in the wilderness wanderings that have to do with the same one, and it interrupts the chronology. And that is complaining. A very pertinent topic for all of us, I'm sure. That word is used, as you'll see when we read it, seven times in our passage. So my hope is that as we drill down into the theme of complaining, that we'll learn to know who God is at a deeper level. So I want to ground the Exodus theology of who God is with three basic points. The patience of God, the providence of God, and the providence of God fulfilled in Jesus. So now let's turn to our Exodus passage is Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 15. Wait, we started at 1, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. 16 and 1. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, remember that, forty-five days, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained, our first instance of complaining. They complained against Moses and Aaron uh, in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of meat, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. For that day. And that way I will test them whether they follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all of the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For well, what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him. What are we? I think that's where the first uh, Jewish saying, you know, what on my chopped liver comes from. What are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, 
I have heard their complaining. I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat the meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance as fine as frost from the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we plunge into this theme of complaining by asking the question, what does this theme teach us about God? Well, as I said, there are three things I think it teaches us. The first is the patience of God. Now, as I said in the introduction, it seems as though Exodus is a book of history, and it is. But it's not history for history's sake. So we simply will know all the facts of who went where and when. Instead, the author's concern with the chronology of the history is what it is teaching. Now, one of the indications that there is a teaching purpose to these passages of scripture that has a didactic purpose is that the events described aren't listed in a strictly chronological order, but according to themes. So the, theology, the chronology plays second fiddle to the theme. The writer of uh, Moses, the writer of Exodus, mentions this in verse 12. He says, all of this is happening. Why? So that they will know I am the Lord your God. That's the purpose. So our story begins, as we read, in Elam. It was an all-inclusive resort. Uh, they were there. It had seven springs and uh, many date palms. So they had plenty of fresh water. They had date palms to eat. They were there for only three days. The reservation was done. They had to leave. And as soon as they leave, what do they start doing? They complain. And so this is where we begin to learn of the nature of God. Now, the Hebrews, the Israelites, may have been ADHD. We know they had a very short attention span. Remember I said, remember this? When we were reading the text, they were 45 days out of Egypt, and they begin to murmur. I like that word. That's an Old Testament kind of word. It's a, a, um, a King James. King James language translates complain, murmur. And it's an onomatopoeia word. It says, I mean, the sound of it is like the thing that it's defining. And so you can just hear this drone of complaining in the background. That's all it, yeah. Good example, Jeff. You want to do that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So they begin their complaining. They remember the good old days of Egypt. Now, imagine that you're a slave. Your family is slaves for 400 years in Egypt. You are making bricks out of mud and straw, back-breaking work. You're building the public works of Pharaoh, and you work all the time. And they're remembering the good old days in Egypt 
when the pots were full of meat and when they had enough bread, more than they wanted. And I'm wondering, had they already forgotten what slavery to Pharaoh was like? Had they dismissed from their minds the miraculous events of the Exodus, where God brought them through the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, on dry land, and then all of Pharaoh's army, 600 chariots and soldiers are drowned in the Reed Sea? I remember when I was in college, this actually happened. I was taking a Bible as literature class, and Bible literature class in most uh, secular state universities is simply a way to prove the Bible isn't true. That's what they're about. <clears throat> so that's what the professor was doing. He says, can you believe this stuff in the Exodus that the, that the soldiers were drowned in the Reed Sea? Because he was saying the Reed Sea was a shallow body of, of water, and it is. And so there's Chiraco winds that come and blow across it in the water parts, and so that's how the people got through. It wasn't any miracles at all. But one of my friends who was a student said, well, then it's really, oh, he said, it, it's only a foot deep. And a friend of mine said to the professor, well, then it's a miracle that God drowned the whole Egyptian army in one foot of water. <laughs> so, yeah, professor didn't know what to say about that. But are the people forgetting this one when they're beginning to complain remembering the good old days in Egypt? Have they dismissed all the miraculous events of the Exodus? But I don't think we should be too hard on the uh, Israelites. Because we too complain. We grumble. We murmur. Particularly if our political party isn't in power because we know the other side of the aisle can never get anything right. And so we complain. We murmur. And remember that the Jews, the Hebrews, had to adjust to a new normal. They were city dwellers, and now they are nomadic shepherds in the wilderness of sin. And that's, that wilderness is just like its name, sin. So they were laborers, and now they had to adjust to a whole new life. How would you adjust to moving from Wesley Village or Thousand Oaks to the Mojave Desert, living in tents, and you had to grow your own crops? Now, before you answer that, <clears throat> remember that you won't have Trader Joe's, and you won't have Starbucks, and you won't have In-N-Out. Oh, no. Awful. <laughs> So how would you adjust to that? Probably by complaining. Yahweh's reaction is what we want to see here. Yahweh isn't like our parents at the worst moment or ourselves as parents in the worst moment when our kids are making us pull our heads out, our hair out, or our neighbors or relatives or ingrates, the thankful for nothing, they act as though they're entitled, I deserve it. And they're driving you crazy. God doesn't react as we would. God doesn't berate. God doesn't chastise. He doesn't punish his people. He doesn't say, well, if that's the way you're going to act, then there will be no dessert, and you'll go to bed directly after you, have, uh, after you do your homework. Instead of defensively reacting to the murmuring, God responds by telling Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. 
What a great literary phrase. Raining bread from heaven. That's what he's going to do for these ingrates, these people whose minds are remembering their past in the wrong way. In the morning there will be bread in the form of manna, in the evening there will be quail, and God is going to bless the complainers, not punish them. Now that's good news for us. I know it's good news for me. There's a description of God in the scripture, particularly in the Psalms, that I love. It's throughout the Psalms, throughout the Old Testament, and a few times in the New Testament. It's this phrase. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the character and nature of God, the God we believe in. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So God is patient with these complaining people. God is patient with us as well. Not only is God patient, but God provides. So this leads us to the second characteristic of Yahweh, the provision of God. Now, if you attended Sunday school and you heard these stories taught in Sunday school, uh, they would be taught as miracle stories, which is right for little kids. And there is much miraculous things, extraordinary things that happen in, in the whole Exodus account. Or maybe you've never been to Sunday school and you haven't read scripture and you read these, these stories for the first time, you probably look on them as miracle stories. And rightly so. But the two phenomena that we're looking at today, the manna and the quail, are quite ordinary events. Manna was a thick liquid secreted by aphid-like insects. Uh, on, they lived on the branches of the tamarisk tree in the Sinai Peninsula, which is still there today. And they secrete this liquid, this thick liquid, that would fall off the branches on the ground. It would cover the ground, and when it was cool, it would be flaky. And you could pick it up and eat it, and it had a sweet taste. It was filled with carbohydrates. Uh, and then the Bedouins, the uh, native uh, nomadic people, lived in the area. They called it manna. It's a Semitic word meaning bread. It was edible until the hot sun came out and began to melt it, and the worms had begun to eat it. But it was a common phenomenon. It was an ordinary event in the Sinai Peninsula. And the provision of quail was also a natural phenomenon. Uh, there is a European species of quail, not a European species of, um, uh, what's the Monty Python? It's a swallows, European swallows. No, it's an African swallow. These are, these are southern European quail. And they would migrate every year from, in the fall, <clears throat> from southern Europe, across the Mediterranean Sea, across the Sinai Peninsula, across the Red Sea to Africa. And then in the spring, they would repeat that migration. And when they flew over these two great bodies of water, the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, they would have to do it in one flight without stopping because they weren't seabirds. And so they would do it, and when they got the Sinai Peninsula, they would be so completely exhausted, they would simply fall on the ground and be immobile. And you could walk out and simply pick them up. 
And so that's the quail. And so in the morning, the Hebrews would go out, they would collect manna, it'd be enough for their family for the day, they'd go in the evening and they would pick up the exhausted quail and that would be their, their protein. So the lesson is that God does the miraculous, but he also functions in ordinary ways. And I believe that we need to keep our eyes open to Yahweh doing his will in the daily ordinary activities of our life. If we expect that God will always do things in an extraordinary way, we're going to miss the blessings of the mundane, the usual, the ordinary. God does the miraculous, the extraordinary. I believe that God is in the business of transforming lives. I believe that God is in the business of providing people in miraculous ways. But also, I believe you'll see God most often when we're looking into the daily events of our lives. If we only look for God in the mountaintop experiences, if there is no mountaintop experience, we'll think that God is absent. G.K. Chesterton was an English writer at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Profound writer. His books are, are very dense, but, but also very deep. He writes this, and I think it gives us a hint of how God is involved in the ordinary events of our lives. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. Have you ever pushed a five-year-old in a swing? Do it again, do it again. So they always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every morning, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. think that it, it would be good for us to grab a hold of this being like God who's strong enough to exalt in monotony. To see in that that God is even in the monotony. God is in the daily, the ordinary, the mundane. And when we're looking for God, we'll find him there. When we learn from these wilderness experiences is the patience of God and the provision of God. But there's one more thing that this passage does. It glimpses into the future. It's like a telescope looking into the distance, bringing the distance nearer to us. The Exodus events are like a telescope that brings the distance closer. And we see through these stories that Jesus is the fulfillment of God as provider. So the provision of God is fulfilled in Jesus. 
Jesus picked up this theme in our New Testament scriptures. That God is patient and a provider. After he had multiplied as we read the two fish and the five barley loaves to feed enough 5,000 people, they have left him. They've come back the next morning. They want more of these miracles and Jesus knows what they want. And he says to them, he draws out the implications by telling them, don't work for these things that are temporary, but believe in me for I am the bread of life. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. God has stamped his authenticity on Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the bread that God promised when he said to Moses in the desert, tell him, I will rain down bread. Raining down bread in Jesus Christ, who's the bread of life that feeds our souls. He's what gives us the sustenance even in the desert wilderness. We receive a monthly magazine at home called The Voice of Martyrs. I don't know if any of you get it, but it's a short little magazine, comes every month, and it has the most amazing stories. It's put out by the Voice of Martyrs, which is a Christian organization that tracks martyrs that were martyred for Jesus uh, in present time, not in the past, but in the 21st century, 20 and 21st century. And so this month, the article came, and it was about uh, martyrs for Jesus in India. And I didn't know that India had any problem with religious freedom. But apparently there is an Indian Hindu group whose sole purpose is to, to reclaim the Hindu um, background and faith for all people in India. So they want everybody, whether Muslim or Christian, to convert to Hinduism. Uh, it's called RSS, that is the initial for a very long name that I can't say, but just remember RSS. It's a national volunteer organization. They have more than 5 million people in India. And what it does, it intimidates by using force and shunning and the legal system to get people to renounce their faith and be converted to Hinduism, get back to their Hindu, the nation's Hindu roots. The prime minister, the present prime minister, Mahdi, uh, he joined the RSS when he was eight years of age. And so this nationalist organization has seen a 20% increase in membership during his uh, tenure of office and an emboldened base that aims at furthering cementing India's Hindu identity. So the magazine tells two stories. One of a 90-year-old pastor, Jacha, who was beaten, arrested, uh, and imprisoned eight times. He's nine years old. He has a house church with his son, and they have 40 people in this little house church, and he's been arrested eight times and been shunned by the people in his um, village. So the interviewer was asking Joshua whether he had any bitterness, and he said, no, he forgives his accuser because Jesus, he said, has forgiven us on the cross. And then the interviewer asked Joshua if he feared being persecuted a ninth time. And the answer is in by quoting 2 Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He continues to lead his church. He continues to feel the persecution of the people in his village. And he continues to pray for the conversion of his entire village every day. You see, there's an example of a man who has experienced the patient provision of a radical faith in Jesus Christ, the bread of life. He has little material wealth, few possessions, but he knows the fullness of Christ, the bread of life. In his wilderness of persecution, Jesus is the bread of life that feeds his soul. God is patient with him. God provides for him. I trust that today that you will know or that you will discover God's patience with you. Even when you murmur and complain. And that you will learn that God provides faithfully because he provides us the bread of heaven enable us to live in obedience to the Lord of life. You will continue to feed on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, that feeds us in the very depths of our souls. At the recesses of our life, we're being fed by the bread of life. That's my prayer for you today.